0: Hello and welcome to another episode of our Outlier Founder series, where we deconstruct the world's most interesting startups and explore the ideas, frameworks, and strategies used to build them. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Malind Mahir, co-founder and CEO of Yield Street. Yield Street was founded in 2014, and over the last eight years, has built one of the largest private investment platforms in the world. To date, they've brought on over 377,000 members to invest more than 1.5 billion, and they've paid out over 196 million in interest on income-producing investments alone, not including principal. As you'll hear, what started out as a far-fetched idea in 2014 to build one of the world's first private market investment platforms, initially focused around producing income investments like credit, hence the name Yield Street, has become one of the largest investment platforms in the world, alongside companies like AngelList and Republic. In this episode, we explore why Alpha has evaporated from public markets with the rise of indexing ETFs and automated investment strategies over the last 20 years. Why private equity, venture capital, real estate, and private credit have exploded in that same time frame why the classic 60-40 portfolio is dead and how investors should rethink their approach to investing across public and private markets going forward, how Yieldstreet built one of the world's largest investment platforms, bringing on investment managers and investors at the same time, and why Yieldstreet's focus has been on building what they call distribution infrastructure for investing and why they built a horizontal business straddling a bunch of smaller verticals instead of focusing on just one aspect of private markets. This episode is our definitive guide to private markets and building a private market investment platform. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 112. That's 112. And you can learn more about Yieldstreet and create an account today at yieldstreet.com or by downloading the Yieldstreet app from the App Store. With that, here's my conversation with Yieldstreet's Melinda Mahir. Melinda, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy. I'm thrilled to spend time with you today to dive into Yield Street and what you're building there.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I wanted to start um, with just a few basics, and one of those was, if you can give people a quick sketch of your background and talk about how that led to you founding Yield Street, just kind of give us the prologue and the backstory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a tech entrepreneur, spend all my life in tech. I'm actually not a finance guy. And I built my career just basically uh, following my passions and using data and technology to solve big problems. So prior to Yield Street, I co founded a company called Yodel, which was a leader uh, ad tech company, leader in helping small businesses advertise online. And then prior to that, I spent my time in enterprise software, uh, working for a company called i2 Technologies uh, that really revolutionized and actually coined the word supply chain in the mid-90s, if you believe it or not. And so it was a great kind of foundation for me to understand how to build amazing software. And so you would then think, how do I go from enterprise software, ad tech to fintech? And I think for me, uh, Daniel, the journey was very personal. So I came to this country as an immigrant student started working professionally, was getting successful in my career, and then global financial crisis hit. We all know where, where we were. You know, you obviously spent time at a great company called Square. And uh, 2009, my pay portfolio was down 50%. I asked my financial advisor, like, hey, what's happening? He said, I can't help it. The whole world is collapsing. And that's when I told him, obviously, being in New York, you have exposure to venture capital, private equity, hedge funds. And I said, hey, can I invest with Apollo or Blackstone? And he starts laughing. He said, I know I'm your financial advisor, wealth manager, but you don't have wealth uh, to invest in those companies. I am like, what? I'm a pretty successful professional. Uh, Why cannot I invest? And and Daniel, the challenge was the minimums were way too high and the lockup periods are way too long. And so that started my quest of like, hey, how do I open access to alternative investments, private markets broadly to the masses? Next several years, I just spent time doing it personally through my, you know, private account, mostly focused on real estate, uh, till I founded, uh, you know, Yield Street about seven years ago. So that's kind of the backstory as to what led me to find, you know, founding Yield Street. Uh, obviously, the big uh, challenge was uh, regulatory environment was getting better, and like mobile was really taking off, right? And so. If you remember, it was Lending Club and some of the real estate platforms earlier on, and then companies like Betterment that kind of wanted to do robo-advice for the public markets. And so investing was getting a lot more acceptance online. And so we thought it was a really great time to uh, make this type of an asset class available to broadly more investors and do it in a manner that's uh, you know really customer friendly and uh, uh, and and a little bit more easier for for consumers to uh learn and 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 invest in.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. And I love the background and the focus on democratizing access because uh, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure many times in this interview, uh, it needs to be done. You know, we need to open up these opportunities for everyone, or at least people who can reason can and and should reasonably be allocating to them to be able to invest. Um I I love that. I would love to kind of uh talk for a second. I I know a lot of people listening have heard of Yield Street. I know many people listening have invested on the platform, but there's also people listening that probably don't know about Yield Street. So can you also just at a super high level, clearly it's it sounds like it's private market focused. What is the elevator pitch for Yield Street and what are some of the investment opportunities people can find on the platform today?
1: So simply put, Yield Street lets you invest in private markets. What does that mean? That means anything outside the public markets, outside stocks and bonds so in alternative investments and all private market investments how should someone think about what alternative investments really mean so for us think of five big food groups private equity credit private credit uh, real assets that includes real estate art transportation venture capital and crypto so those are big five food groups and uh, generally why people come to yield street is you either want to generate income passive income and that would come from private credit or debt based offering or you want to have capital appreciation so when you invest in real estate you have equity in your real estate in 5 years when the real estate goes up you would you know take benefit of that you know equity which is exactly why we buy homes and hope that over a period of time the homes go up uh, that's why people buy second houses with the same expectation of generating income as well as capital appreciation so we help you do that at scale and uh you know generally uh there are two ways to invest on real estate you can go into a direct investment uh single offering which is let's say a real estate apartment in nashville 300 unit apartment uh and that's uh, one investment you can go to or you could invest in thematic funds and the funds are you know private equity funds or venture capital funds or a crypto fund. And uh, you could get ac- uh, diversified access to those funds. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is what Street helps you do. Now, the most important thing, going back to my motivations about starting a company, is you can do this at minimums that are much more palatable. So you could invest as low as 500 or $1,000, uh, but go as high as half a million dollars uh, if you... Ch- uh, if you choose to do that. And I think that is you know very, very important. And then the other thing is the biggest challenge, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, is people are uh, obsessed with liquidity. And so what Yieldstreet has done is we have designed products that are as short as three months, but they're also as traditional as 10 years. And you, know, you want various uh, ways in which you can build a rolling portfolio because not 100% of your assets or money should be liquid and so we help people think through like hey you know how should what does the liquidity profile look like for you and what are your needs and based on that you have different products and access to different products
0: yeah that sounds incredibly useful i want to ask one more question i love interviewing people that are kind of repeat or serial entrepreneurs and it, the question i wanted to ask you there is one I'm sure that's deeply personal, your reason to continue to do this again and again, because building companies is exciting. It's also really difficult, (laughs) as you know. What was your initial motivation and what has kept you coming back to build business after business?
1: Listen, my initial motivation is that I come from uh, a family of entrepreneurs and I was growing up and I went to uh, school in in India and, and here also. But in 90s india was amazing it was opening up its economy for a long time it was a closed economy and so that created a, a tremendous level of entrepreneurial kind of spirit and uh, i think for me that was always the case so even when i took my first job out of college uh, which was in boston i had participated in mit 50k competition it is now 100k but back in the day it was uh, 50k and i had reached semifinals. semi-finals i think it was in 2001 or 2002 And so it was always in in the back of my mind of like really trying to have an impact and like create something of value that consumers would would love. And uh, so I think that was very, very important to me and trying to solve big problems. And I think uh, for me, it's like, you know, we all live in this world of instant gratification, right? And so some ways, you know, startups kind of you give you that dopamine of like, you can actually have an impact. The things that you think about, you could translate very quickly. And, uh, you know, of course, that's the good part. Obviously, there are lots of dark days and, you know, like, uh, you know, stressful days. But that's what gets me coming back to it. And I think as I was telling earlier, Real Street was really personal to me, where I think that there is this huge wealth gap that exists. We speak about this income gap. And why does that exist? Is because a lot of these investments are locked up for people who are already super wealthy. And so slowly, slowly, how can you open that access? Now, you know, obviously, unfortunately today, not all products on Street are available for everybody, but that's the vision, right? Next 10 years, that's the whole vision because we are entering a golden age of fintech. And in the next 10 years, hopefully through technology, Blockchain, other things that are happening in our ecosystem. Consumer behavior is changing. Hopefully, we'll be able to get a lot more people on the table and get them access to these type of opportunities. And we feel that that's going to reduce the income and opportunity gap in the next ten years for people as more and more people get access to such products. So that drives the kind of the mission-oriented part of what we are trying to do here.
0: Yeah, so well said. I mean, what you're doing at Yield Street is. Uh, super important because it is, you know, as somebody who grew up in a household that, you know, we had, my parents had no sophistication around investing. You know, we invested in basically the vanilla, probably the default options in whatever their retirement account was. We're clearly moving to a world where people care more and more about their investments and and are genuinely thinking about it as they should be. And so I love that, you know, you're building a platform that's democratizing that. Um, one other thing I was just going to say is you talked about those five major food groups. You know, I've always one of the best quotes I've heard about those is that those are access classes and not asset classes, which I think is really true because it's all about if you can't get access to them, you can't invest in them um, anyways. And so I love that. That's what you're doing at Yield Street. <laughs> I want to, uh, before we dive into Yield Street because um, we're going to talk about the marketplace you've built there, uh, what that looks like. But before we do that, I want to spend time talking about public versus private markets and the shift we've gone through over the last few decades and, and kind of what maybe the next decade or two might look like. Where I wanted to start was... Uh, you know, as you think about public markets, over the last 20 years, a lot of people would argue that the alpha has been sucked out by uh, automation, by effectively low cost ETFs. Uh, it's just been arbitraged away a-, a lot by technology and by things like Wealthfront and robo advisors. How do you think about what's happened in the public markets and how does that shape why people should be investing in private markets more?
1: So, uh, for you actually hit the nail on the head last 20 years we moved from active to passive through automation so most of us are accessing low cost etfs index funds and and mutual funds that's you know part of the uh, part of our equation but that le- leaves us with no alpha right we generally you know generating beta beta in the market but broadly speaking what has happened outside the public markets think about private equity funds so think about apollo blackstone kkr carlyle they they took the first 20 to 30 years of their existence to get to 40 billion dollars of aum okay individually in the last 10 12 years since the global financial crisis they've gone from 40 to 400 500 700 billion dollars why because they're generating returns for their investors who are their investors sophisticated lps pension funds endowments nonprofits sovereign funds why are they investing them? Because again, they're driving alpha. Okay. So that's a very, very big phenomenon because they've been successful. Um, and so our thesis is why should we not have access to that? Okay. And what we have been told is 60, 40 is the way to go. Okay. But that was true 40 years ago, not today's environment. Right. So that's one reason. The second reason, Daniel, is that when our parents invested, right, in 80s, 90s, companies to go public really soon. And then they really had their growth after they were public. So think about Apple, HP, IBM, Cisco, Sun, Oracle, Microsoft, like the name goes on and on, like they went public so soon. Okay. And so in the 80s and 90s, they had tremendous uh, run in the stock market and all of the retail investors like our parents benefited from it. But that's not happening in the last 20 years. More companies are staying public. So outside of Salesforce and uh, Facebook, and Google, and Amazon, there are only a few companies that went public that really exploded, right? But a lot of the companies like, you know, Airbnb and Zoom and NetSuite, all these companies stayed, stayed, you know, they stayed, you know, private for so long. Uber and like just so many companies. And so I think those two phenomenons are are really what's, uh, uh, you know, holding just generally a consumer's portfolio back. And we feel that, All is going to drive alpha in the next decade. And so I think that's important for for us to make it more accessible, but also educate the consumer that, hey, this should be part of your thinking and, you know, part of your portfolio.
0: Yeah. So just to recap, because you covered a lot of ground there. It sounds like, one, it's partly that, yeah, companies are staying private longer, which means you need to be a private market investor to get that alpha. Otherwise, if you invest in the public market, it's, you know, probably doing fine, but probably not generating a ton of alpha. You also have the private markets have exploded in size, which I want to t- spend. I want to talk about a little bit more in a second, um, talking about how, just how big public, e- uh, private equity, and venture capital has become. And you know, then you've you've seen obviously historically people have invested mostly in public markets. Now, uh, well, sophisticated investors have always been investing in public and private markets, and so hopefully individuals can now move in that direction. I want to talk for a second because um, you you talked about private equity and how you know private equity going from forty billion to say seven hundred billion recently which is fascinating and just you know an order of magnitude growth is incredible that same thing has happened on the venture capital side how do you think about that part of the equation i'm sure that's part of companies staying private longer because i want to kind of make the point for people that the private markets have gotten much 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 bigger and it's not just private equity it's also venture capital it's credit funds how do you look about how do you think about the size of those things and how they've grown similarly to private equity
1: yeah so i think uh you know, they are filling a a need in the market, right? Because what's happening is over the last 10 years, 15 years, consumer behavior has also changed. So a lot of the consumers have become global. So an example is travel industry, right? Or Airbnb, right? It's not just like, hey, I want to go for a weekend, uh, uh, you know, weekend trip to uh, upstate New York or to Lake Tahoe, like we now go to Paris and can have an option of staying in Airbnb. So generally, the global markets has uh, have completely uh, you know expanded. Uh, number two is that the consumer behavior has changed, so the markets have become much larger. And so VC funds and PE funds are catering to that by doing this massive you know rounds. And technology and data is enabling these companies to reach the consumer like they've never done before. And so I think they are playing that you know very important role. And so again, our belief is that how do you how do you make those type of investments available? So I'll I'll give you two examples on the industry. We offered StepStone, which is a, a publicly traded investment firm. Greenspring Associates were acquired by StepStone, and we offer their funds. Greenspring has a 20-year track record. They are a fund of fund managers primarily. So what they do is they invest in other venture capital funds. They also make direct investments, but they invest in other Venture capital funds, and so they invest their LPs in um, Andreessen and NEA and Bessemer and like, like really top tier VCs. Now, if you want to invest in them, the minimums would be very high on private wealth platform if they are available at all. So now you can invest on Yield Street at twenty five or forty thousand dollars minimums, which is uh, which obviously is incredible. The other aspect is that what other flavors of VC uh, investment can you offer? So, secondaries is another uh, another big thing. So, secondary sales. So, for example, if the company, as we spoke about earlier, stays private long, early investors and employees and management might want uh, some liquidity after five, six, seven years at the company. So, that's when secondary sales come into picture. And uh, so, you know, secondaries fund is another way to access some of these, you know, high growth companies where you're not taking early stage venture risk, which obviously exists quite a bit because it's not a proven company yet. But later stage, uh, you know, growth company risk where, you know, now the company is already proven. And so now it's on a path to go IPO. It has real revenues, profitability in some cases. And so how do you tap into that? And then the third strategy is kind of pre-IPO allocation, right? And so co-investment. And so you can take a specific company that is, you know, on a uh, pre-IPO path and make that available where you could put small checks. So for example, we have fetch rewards that is on the, on the platform. And that company uh, was funded by, in their last round by SoftBank and, uh, and really you know, great investors all around. We are actually uh, announcing another very exciting company in the next couple of weeks. And so, you know, usually you will not get access to those type of rounds on your own if you want to put small checks. And so I think that really, you know, can, kind of gives people access to that venture ecosystem that they didn't have before.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great overview. I mean, one example of secondaries, you were just talking about this. I think SpaceX right now is doing something like a 200 million plus secondary offering in part to give companies liquidity. And this one is an example of a company that's already generated a massive amount of alpha for their investors, still in the, still in the private markets, likely to be in the private markets potentially for a decade <laughs> from now, but using, you know, secondaries as a way for investors to be able to get access to it. Um, it's just a timely example. I want to talk for a second about that 6040 portfolio because, um, not to belabor the point, but you know, I think um, you've touched on this a little bit that that is dead. And I think that's widely talked about that it's dead. And people talk about that from both sides that one on the public market side, yes, you should have public market exposure, but you should generally expect kind of lower future returns on the bond side. You know, there's a sense that maybe the next decade is going to be a bond bear market and it's going to do really poorly. What are your thoughts on why the 6040 no longer works and is basically broken? And then how would you maybe think about that and translate? that, to a public-private split. Do you have any recommendations or thoughts there in terms of how to allocate a portfolio between those two sides of the market?
1: Yeah. So I will start with the second question first, which is allocation. So our belief is that by 2025, consumers should have at least 25% uh, in private market allocation. So that very much, you know, kind of you apply that whether it's 20, 25, 30 percent, that really depends on who you are as a consumer. But if you apply that, then your 60, 40 naturally has to change to, you know, uh, 45, 25, 25 or something like that, right? Or 45, 30, 25. Um, So I think that is something which is very important. Now, why is that? again i think uh, institutional investors have up to 60% allocation so why does why do you think blackstone went from 50 billion to 750 billion because a lot of the institutional investors invested heavily with them over the last um, you know uh, 20 odd years and so when institutional investors have 50 60% allocation to alls, some portion of that retail also should have and then family offices historically mainly because of real estate and those type of holdings have pretty large allocation, close to 40, 50% to alls alls as well, including kind of real estate. So I think that is very important. The other thing is that when 6040 was conceived, the only option really was stocks and some bonds, right? And so when Charles Schwab was formed in the 70s or Vanguard and all that, that was the only choice. And so people wanted to have some diversification uh, within those uh, those buckets. So they started with 6040. Now, That's, you know, no longer the case. We have all these asset classes, venture, private equity, credit funds, various different types of, you know, obviously crypto and and DeFi, though it's taking a bath in the last (laughs) four or five, six weeks. But of course, those were, were, you know, those are real asset classes with over trillion dollars, two trillion dollars allocated to them. And so those are all in the mix now. And changes to regulation is allowing or making it slightly better. It still has a long way to go, but slightly better for people to get access to it. And so that's why it should be part of the conversation.
0: Yeah. I want to close by asking two questions around this and then we'll move on to talk a little bit more about Yield Street. One, I want to go back to the point you made earlier talking about liquidity because obviously, you know, just maybe I give my own myself as an example. I've been in, I've very heavily allocated to private markets. Um, I believe that's the right thing to do. So I'm totally with you on that. Uh, my allocation generally is much higher than 25%, but that's just a personal choice. And one of the things you learn over time is, yes, there are incredible returns. There's also illiquidity. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I think it's this weird thing of you have a lot of potentially paper wealth especially if you're you're invested in something that you know is around appreciation as opposed to income but you may that may not be liquid and you may not get access to that cash or those returns for years even up to a decade and and so you you talked about this idea of building a rolling portfolio of liquidity just talk about that a little bit more because I think it's a really important concept and I want to make sure people understand what that means
1: yeah appreciate the question very much uh, I think I think in my view there are two ways to generate liquidity so just to recap one is rolling portfolio what do I mean by that so on a platform like yield Street you have investments that have a term of as low as three months all the way to 10 12 years and so I think as a consumer we are offering education as well as uh, you know shortly this summer we'll offering uh, will offer automated tools, to create customized portfolio depending upon your uh, liquidity needs. So, you know, maybe you put some portion into investments that have, you know, like very short term, so zero to two years. Others in medium term, two to four or five years, and then others in long term, which is five years plus. And so, I think that's one way to think about liquidity. The other way is to have true liquidity. So, at Yield Street, we launched a secondary market for some of our funds uh, last year. And so some funds have quarterly liquidity. So, you know, every quarter you'll get an email saying, hey, if you want to redeem, let us know. And we are, we are offering that and expanding that. We as a company are, are very focused on it. And I, I'm, I'm sure the industry is focused on it. Where we, my vision is that ultimately you should have the same experience as E-Trade or Robin or where you could be able to go into your position and say sell. So I know, Daniel, you do a ton of venture investing, you know, obviously you have a very large venture portfolio, but imagine like the spaces, SpaceX example, if you could take your portfolio and it would be on a platform and you could say, Hey, I want to sell because I want to sell maybe 20% of my portfolio. I need some liquidity. I'm building a house, sending my kid to college. I want to buy a second apartment, whatever may be the case, want to get married. And like you hit click and you have a automated market. That would be, that would be great. And so I think for us, Yield Street from a vision perspective, that's really where we are going. And we're taking slow steps. So I'll, I'll give you another example. This summer, we want to launch a secondary fund. What does that mean? We'll reach out to our investor community on certain deals and say, hey, you have an opportunity to sell. Here is how much is the value currently of that investment. And you let us know what we will do, aggregate all of that. So maybe I'll take, Daniel, you 25000 from deal one and Joe's 25000 from deal 75, aggregate thousands of investors into a fund and uh, offer liquidity. And then what we could do is take that fund and offer that back on the platform for our investors, right? Because then you suddenly get access to 15 different investments and, uh, you know, that have already been originated and are are, uh, are being offered on the platform. So so that's way to do it. And then ultimately, uh, again, as I was saying, you know, we, I, I want to see a world where you could like, do, it, do it the same way we do, do for stocks. Of course, there's lots of complexity and regulatory hurdles to cross there, but blockchain and DeFi you know, potentially can, can be a solution along with regulatory changes to kind of get us there. I don't see it happen in the next 12 to 24 months, but definitely in the next three to four years, five years, it's a really good ambition for all of us to have who are in the industry.
0: Yeah. Well it's also amazing just to reflect on you know, you've been building Yield Street for seven years. You've obviously accomplished an incredible amount, and yet just hearing you talk about some of the things that are coming up, it you know, these are massive, massive changes. That one, deliver on deliver against the mission you had when you founded the company, but two move the ball forward considerably for investors, just in terms of making this, you know, there's again, going back to that comment earlier, there's the, let me get access to it part, but then there was the help me, you know, manage it, help me get liquidity, help me think through it. Just help, you know, help add alpha to my, to my own decisions. Last question is around retail investors. You know, and if when you think about retail investors today, just that term, you know, you might think last year on Robinhood, you know, kind of options trading, maybe GameStop. Um, you know, there's also this sense of retail investors spending a lot of time in crypto. How do you think about retail investors? Uh, you know, the kind of, because it feels like we've gone through a tectonic shift. And I guess from my perspective, you know, I'm mid thirties. I know for my generation, but I know especially for people that are five, 10 years younger than me, they're one much more interested, investing than I think anyone has been historically 2 they're taking kind of the reins themselves and making their decisions for better or for worse. And I think we'll get, you know, we'll figure out how to help these people make better decisions over time, but it seems like a tectonic shift. So how do you think about the impact of retail and where, where that's going and why it's important?
1: Yeah, I think Daniel, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think uh, we are sitting on a generational wealth transfer so 60 trillion is going to be transferred from baby boomers to generation xyz so people who are older than 55 are going to transfer 60 trillion dollars to people between 20 and 55 so all of us are going to be recipients of that we are not golfing with our advisor at a private bank or you know sitting and having donuts with them right uh, we want to be educated we are all smart we know how to use technology we know how to consume data we are doing it every single day of our lives And we are making real decisions, right? And so financial services have to move. We were very excited for the last 20 years that the bank went from analog to digital and we could scan our checks and not having to go to the bank. But it is a lot more than that, right? Of course, digital payments has been a huge part of it and obviously block has led the way in terms of how, you know, square... Uh, as it was called earlier, had led the way of how payment should like really work, right? So I think those changes are happening and that's going to propel what changes users need to see. But I think going back to your point, what happened in the last four or five years is technology and consumer behavior dramatically changed, okay? We see it in our own ecosystem, Daniel. Our first, I still remember this, we launched our mobile app. We were the first alts platform to launch a mobile app four or five years ago, 2017. Our first investment was from the middle of Lake Minnesota. How amazing is that? You know, it's probably a dad fishing with his son or a family, and our investments launched at a specific time, and they came in and invested, uh, probably from their iPad. And and so that was really a great game-changing kind of experience or insight that we had. So I think that whole consumer behavior has shifted. People want a seat at the table. Now, the question is, how do you responsibly ensure that the consumers are educated, know what they're getting into, what is the liquidity, and all of that is on us to ensure that that happens. And then right type of consumers get access to right type of products. And so, obviously, we have to work with regulators, you know, bring them up to speed with what's changing in the world and really have that dialogue. And, and you know, by the way, in the past, we have engaged with the SEC to actually show them product screenshots. And our lawyer used to say, lawyers used to say, hey, no, SCC doesn't engage like this. And we used to say, like, what's the point of just commenting on the filing? Let's show them the user experience because then they will be able to attest as like, hey, is this right or wrong for the users? What should we disclose? What should we not disclose? How should we advertise? And we engage with the regulators that way. And so I think that's going to drive, Daniel, a really dramatic shift in the coming years why people can get access to interesting products.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's such a great example because I imagine historically the SEC is probably looking at like offering memorandums, which I'm sorry, but almost no one reads. <laughs> so you can provide all the feedback you want there about disclosures and, you know, kind of warnings, and but it's not going to be super helpful. It's it's amazing you guys kind of think in terms of UI. And I didn't know you had a mobile app five years ago, but I mean, that was, it's amazing. angelist you know, I don't think Republic has a, has a, you know, a mobile app. So you guys are very, uh, very early on some of these things. I want to kind of switch uh, now and talk a little bit about one the origins of Yield Street and then how you guys have evolved. Um, and and on the origin side of Yield Street, the reason I want to explore it is you know, when I think that the company was founded seven years ago, the environment was very, very, very different. And so I want to stop for a second and I think talk about just have you maybe share with us what was it like? What was the environment like? What other players in private markets were there? What was the private market appetite like? Just give us a little bit of a sense of what it was like seven years ago. When you were founding the company. And then we'll talk about how much has changed over that period of time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Environment was very different, right? I think uh, the there was Lending Club and Prosper, which was very much around consumer lending, so as to speak. And then there was Betterment, Wealthfront on the robo-advice side. Uh, in alts, they were primarily platforms on real estate. Okay, so there used to be uh, Realty Mogul and Realty Shares and a bunch of early stage kind of platforms where they're on the real estate side. So our thesis was, my thesis was, I'm building this for myself. I'm not going to go to 10 platforms that are aligned by asset classes. It doesn't make sense to me, right? Like I want a horizontal exposure to alls, And uh, that was really the thesis behind it. Uh, I met my co-founder, Michael Weiss, uh, almost eight years ago. And as I told you and your audience earlier, I don't come historically from financial service. I was mostly from that consumer side, like, hey, I needed this for my portfolio. What is the best user experience I can develop and the best product I can put out there that can really make this easy for the consumers to A, understand, B, learn, and then C, invest. And so obviously, I needed uh, an investment expert. And Michael was trying to solve this problem from the same side. He was getting successful as an entrepreneur, as a fund manager, as a portfolio manager, but his business was built on meeting with individuals personally. And that was not a scalable model as he became successful. And being a millennial himself, he said, hey, how can I tap into technology, build an online brand so that what I'm doing and I'm generating this really strong returns, how can I get more people to automatically interact with me and and invest alongside me? So that's really how the idea kind of came together. And a lot of the VCs early stage told us that, hey, invest only in one or two asset classes or bring them to market only in one or two asset classes. And we said, no, longer term, we don't want to be an asset class specific platform. We are a distribution infrastructure. What we want to do is what's best in class and bring them all together and we can throttle up and throttle down. Okay. So as an example, let's say venture capital market was very high. And like, let's say in the next one or two years, the demand dries down for venture capital or it's like, you know, not attractive. We could dial that down. You don't need to invest in venture capital. Maybe real estate debt is going to come back because last year, real estate debt was very, very, uh, uh, very few deals were available. All the banks were doing those deals, but now maybe banks won't do it. And then we can dial up real estate debt. So for us, we all depend on, okay, what's happening in the market? What's right at that time? And then you hold your portfolio for a long period of time. So Daniel, that's really where, you know, like the dynamism of a distribution platform comes into picture where we are not tied to a strategy per se, but we are tied to a holistic approach of exposing you to private markets. And you could dial up, dial down just based on broad, you know, what's happening broad in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. Random side note, but just because you brought up Michael, I remember when I first found Yield Street. I want to say it was 2015 or 2016. And Michael literally got on the phone to me for 30 minutes to talk through one of the deals on the platform. And, you know, it made an impression on me. um, And, you know, it was just, anyway, so it's a fascinating, it it seems like a world, a completely different world. (laughs) It's five, five, six, seven years ago. But um, anyways, it was was really cool um, kind of moment and connection.
1: Daniel, can I share a funny story for your audience? So when we started the company, Michael said, hey, man, I know you understand marketing and technology and stuff like that. There is no way you can aggregate consumers to come on the site, acquire them online and get them to invest in legal finance and real estate bridge loans and put 10, 20, $30,000. And I said, Michael, if you do your job, and get me great investments, I can get as many consumers as you want. So the funny thing was like, so we said, okay, let's set a bet Who who's right. So for the first two years, I was losing pretty badly because investments used to be open for months. Like nobody had heard of Wheel Street. We didn't have trust, credibility in the market. We we're just launching new platform it was again very gorilla right like so the way michael got on the call with you i used to call my friends and my friends would be like dude what do you know about investing like why are you calling me with a 10 percent deal like you know is this real and so you know you have to build your way into it right Because money management is so personal this is people's hard on money and and you want to you know establish that trust and credibility and then after first two or three years as we started paying interest back and as our deal started maturing we had this word of mouth and referral and i still remember 25 years ago february 2017 we launched an investment and our website crashed because there were so many people on the site wanting to invest in that in- investment and listen man it was like probably 1000 2000 people not like tens of thousands of people but we were running on pre aws boxes at that time right and that's when kind of uh, you know uh, the pendulum kind of swung a little bit and then since then we have been having a strong, you know, demand for our platform. You know, we have investments that used to be subscribed in minutes and seconds. And that's when I told Michael, like, now the the, the pendulum is saying, swung on the investor side, right? And and so we kind of go keep going back and forth. That's the beauty of two-sided marketplace. Like you have to keep supply and demand in, in balance, right? Uh, to ensure that you're kind of bringing the right product to market.
0: Yeah. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. I'm sure after years of building it and, you know, just facing... Headwinds, it probably felt amazing to have your site go down in some ways, <laughs> even though I'm sure it probably wasn't the best day. Related to that, I'm glad you shared that story because one of the things I wanted to talk about was what the perception was like in those early years, because I think this is something that um, isn't talked about enough of just the uphill slog you face, as you talked about building credibility, letting people know who you are. So, one of the questions I wanted to ask you know, you talked a little bit about advice you got from venture capitalists to maybe focus on one or two things and try those first. What was the reaction like when you first launched? Did you have how skeptical were investors? Did you get any pushback from funds about like why would I use a platform to help me raise capital because it just wasn't the way things were done? What was the initial reception like? And, and yeah, talk a little bit about how that changed over the you know first few years.
1: Yeah, all of all of the above, Daniel. I think uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you are in kind of money management, wealth management, there is an extreme need for trust and credibility. Right, and uh, so I think we were a new side. I think one of the big uh, lessons uh, that I would I always tell entrepreneurs is that you have to get to the product, product to the market, immediately, very, very fast. So I have this concept. I don't believe in MVPs, but I believe in something called MEPs, most effective product. Okay. Most viable product means that, hey, I can cut corners. I just want to get something out. Effective is that, is it effective in the the marketplace? So we launched our platform from the time we started coding in 90 days, okay? And the whole idea was, how do you kind of create that trust with the user by showing them the right type of detail and creating a seamless experience? So when people used to come, the whole workflow to invest was automated day one. But on the back end, we are not hooked up to all the banks and stuff like that. So we used to literally manually say, hey, this is... uh, you know, this is how we have to move money, manually enter the bank accounts and, and transfer funds and all that. But for the consumer, it was a very seamless experience. So you also have to understand your audience. In our case, we were similar to like Airbnb, for, for example, right? A is a discretionary purchase. So Daniel, you want to invest in real estate, you could invest today or three months from now. If you're a savvy investor, you understand what is the value of cash because if you keep it in cash, you're going to lose money to inflation, right? So so obviously, you want to, to invest at the right time, but it's completely discretionary. The other thing is that you don't interact with the platform very frequently because you could come to the platform three, four, seven times a year to invest, right? So how do you kind of create those moments of job, which is similar to Airbnb? Airbnb was like, hey, is this for hippies and, and just couch surfers? Or is it a viable option for me to take my family on a, vaca- a vacation, right? And then how do you become central? Because now, over the last 10 years, when we are booking a vacation, now Airbnb is part of the equation. Seven Five years ago, seven years ago, it was not, right? Because they were still kind of trying to build that trust and credibility. So for me... Those were the two things that we had to focus on is to how do you get them to like, give them trust, credibility, content, education, so they feel confident. And then how do you create those moments of joy? So one of the first things I did, and by the way, I was building the platform for myself. So for me, think about our experience, right? We have our bank account, primary bank account. We have salary coming in and whole bunch of bills go out, right? And so what we said is, hey, we want to, provide yield street deposit directly back into the bank accounts so that's really where you started with that moments of joy journey so you invested in yield street after a month you got like 400 dollars 2000 $ and like you are now like oh wow yield street is like sending me money back and so you kind of build that trust and credibility with the the consumer and i think that was really very powerful so we were you know we were very excited about that and and, and it takes a time you know especially in kind of finance and investment business some of those things just take time.
0: Yeah. Well, I love your concept of most effective product. We're absolutely going to make that a clip from this episode and talk about that in the show notes and and blow that out. Um, cause I think that's a really interesting and different framing than how I've heard that framed before. I want to talk now a little bit about, um, the evolution and some of the mechanics of the business. And I want to go back to something uh, that you said a little bit ago that you were building a distribution infrastructure. That, um, I, I love that uh, concept. Break down for people listening what that is and and why that's important and how that shaped how you built the business and how you built the platform.
1: So when we think about Street, okay, we have two primary constituents. One is obviously our investor base. And these are the consumers that come to the platform wanting to really modernize their portfolio, get access to private markets. On the other side, we have sponsors and asset managers and issuers who want to distribute their product through Yield Street. And so, our role we see is kind of that glue in the middle that is making it easier for both of them to to interact with each other. And so, what we have done on Yield Street is build that distribution infrastructure. So, you as a fund manager, asset manager, sponsor, like literally, don't have to do anything. Once we agree on that investment, we get that investment memorandum from you, and then our team translates that into a digestible offering page on the website, and you know makes it completely seamless. So for you, we are, as an issuer, we are the only party. Okay, so you don't have to worry about the five hundred thousand, two thousand investors that may be in an investment. You are just one counterparty to YieldStreet, and then for the consumer, you come in. It's all mobile, very easy to understand. You can engage with the platform with four clicks. You can investment, uh, invest in an offering. You are linked with your bank account. We also have a bank account on Street. So everything flows flawlessly, right? So when you are getting paid back, we get one check from our issuer. With a click of a button, it goes to 1,000 people across 200 banks, You know, real time. You can, we manage the cap table, all the interest that you get, you know, where the investment is, what is the status of the investment, uh, how much returns did you get in the last month, last quarter, you have your K-1s, 10, 19, and everything is baked into the platform. And so I think that's really, uh, you know, what what makes uh, distribution infrastructure so critical that you have information on the fingertips, both in terms of your experience prior to investing, during the investment, and after the investment is fully matured because you have all that data with you.
0: Yeah. Well, it also makes me realize, uh which is not surprising, that you guys hide an enormous amount of complexity from the users on the platform. Cuz effectively for them, like you said, it's four clicks, but there's a lot happening behind the scenes to one make it four clicks, to have it be a digestible investment memor- memorandum, to have cash flow in the right places in the right ways. I want to talk for a second about the investment manager side of the platform cuz clearly we've spent most of the time talking about the investor side. I'm, you know, a general partner um a couple of funds i've spent a lot of time talking with investors mostly individually it is very different when you can raise from a platform because one the amount you can raise and the effort that you have to expend to raise you know so as an example say you might close one individual investor and say get two hundred and fifty thousand into a fund or you can go to yield street work with yield street and potentially fill five million or 2.5 million um, on the platform How, like, I guess what I'd be curious to know is when investment managers that haven't have always done kind of individual pitching use Yieldstreet, what do they say and how blown away are they by basically being able to use the platform? And can you share any, you know, personal success stories or individual success stories there?
1: Yeah. So let's start with the the recent success story. So we decided to launch uh, just crypto exposure. Our investors were asking for it for a long period of time. Uh, I want to start by saying, obviously, we have investors, not traders. So we are very careful of, you know, which funds we offer on the platform uh, and, and how we offer them. So obviously, if you want to trade, industry is not the right, right platform for you. So we offered Pantera Capital that has been in the business since 2006. are really, you know, uh, have a good, you know, solid track record. And our first fund was um, early stage token ICO fund. And so obviously, it's a high risk, high reward type of fund. And we had two x the subscription, so we started with 20 million dollars, and we actually had to double it because there was so much demand from the from the platform. That's really kind of exciting for for managers. And to take that concept out, if you hear any of the big executives from the large private equity fund, so Mark Rowan spoke at the Milken Conference, said that hey, retail is a very important part of the story. Blackstone, you know, has is doing BREIT, which is their real estate platform, taking you know, uh, reaching out to Uh, retail investor directly by themselves, because they know that, you know, the earlier thing I said, consumer behavior is changing. The next decade, all the investments are coming to come from retail. The other reason, by the way, for that, Daniel, is that if today alts are already 50, 60% of LP's portfolio, CalPERS cannot go from 50, 60 to 80. So they're kind of tapping out on the institutional LP side. So obviously retail is going to be the next big frontier for them. And so all of these guys are 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 not saying that hey, retail is going to today solve my problem and Yield Street. Oh, it's so exciting that we are raising 10, 20, 30 million dollars for them today. But they know that as our platform scales, tomorrow it's going to be 100. Five years from now, it will be 500. And so, like they want to partner with us. So uh, we always tell our Uh, asset managers and issuers, uh, 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 it's not today's relationship, but how the relationship will evolve in one, three, five years from now. And they believe in that because they are seeing those broad trends as well. And for them, it's very easy because we manage everything from accreditation, investor verification for KYC, AML, money, taxes, communication, all of it. And so it's very easy for them uh, you know in terms of how to interact with Yale Street, how to use Yale Street as a platform uh, and we feel that there is going to be a strong alignment and partnership with them as uh, as we kind of expand and continue to to develop that network
0: yeah, that's so well said. I want to ask one closing question, and then we'll switch to kind of a little bit of a retrospective and talking about lessons learned and the closing question that I wanted to ask was um you know, as you think about this platform that you've built and it, it is a marketplace, you have two sides of the marketplace. It's a real, you know, that is a really unique type of business to run because as a founder, as a team that's managing and growing that business, you have to bootstrap both sides of that marketplace and then you have to kind of, you know, balance it over time. So I was curious to ask, um, well, one, was this your first marketplace business and what ahas or lessons did you learn there? And then two, how have you guys approached balancing this two-sided marketplace and building up both sides, you know, kind of symmetrically?
1: Yeah. So uh, it is my, uh, it is my um, th- from a true marketplace perspective, yes. But, uh, you know, if you think about my previous business, Yodel, what we were trying to do is connect consumers to small businesses. And so we were the software layer in between. So there was some element of, uh, you know, there is some elephantement of like two-sided connection that that was happened, but obviously it was not a, a marketplace where people could go and connect with with each other. Uh, so in in that aspect, this is uh, this is the first time that I am uh, uh, I am I'm doing a marketplace business. I think the challenge for us is always to uh, make sure that we have the right supply-demand mix. Okay, so what do I mean by that? obviously investors are spooked in the last, especially in the last two months, right? But in the last one year, think about what the market has done. You know, you have Facebook that's trading at 10 times PE, you know, and, and you have Coca-Cola that's trading at 26 times PE. So there's been like tremendous level of like sell-off, right? Because Facebook still is a very, uh, meta is still a very high growing company. Um, but people are spooked because of that. So, and a lo- lot of people have lost. If you look at your, you know, public portfolio, are down twenty, thirty, forty percent, and so they are they are a little bit afraid. But then the other aspect is uh, we are sitting on six, seven trillion dollars of cash. Okay, that's losing eight percent to inflation right now, or seven percent, whatever you may call it. Okay, so then how do you kind of reconcile that? So what that translates into a behavior on yield street where people might be looking for more. Uh, short-duration, high-yield income-generating product versus wanting to invest in a 10-year private equity fund. And so as a, as a platform, we have to adapt that supply-demand and have to be nimble enough to be able to do that, which is what, again, distribution infrastructure comes into picture. So that's the dynamism of a marketplace that we have to do, which is no different than you know potentially Amazon or Airbnb, Right. If you have, uh, you know, if you have demand for a certain area, Airbnb has to ensure that there is more supply available in those areas because consumers are going there. Um, and then the same goes, like we've been talking about uh, supply chain as, a, as a, for a long time. Right. And now you're seeing that, OK, people, you know, a lot of retailers had hired, a, um, not hired, a lot of retailers had had a lot of inventory on certain items. And now consumer behavior is shifting, so they have to you know, maybe have sales and stuff like that. So you have to really adjust according to that. And so those are some of the challenges of two-sided marketplace. And if you can solve that, then you become the next Airbnb or Shopify or you know, any other big names, right? Uber as an example.
0: Yeah. Well, I love I love for you guys that it you know this concept of turning dials and being able to do that with duration and being able to do that by asset classes. You know, I think it speaks to that initial thesis that yeah, we don't want to focus on one asset class where we have all the volatility of that asset class. We want to focus on a horizontal business that offers all of them. Oh, it's really powerful. I want to switch and talk about some lessons learned. You know, as you look back over the last seven years. Um, the question I wanted to start with is what do you think you got right about your thesis and is there anything that you got wrong or is there anything that surprised you over the last seven years about just how successful you guys have been at building Yield Street?
1: So listen, I think what we got right about the thesis is that alts are going mainstream and we wanted to be the catalyst to take alts mainstream. When we started the company, like a lot of VCs told us that, listen, you guys are early and market still has to develop. And it took time for market to develop. So I think we got that thesis right. Now everybody knows that alls are going mainstream. Next ten years, not everybody, mean everybody in the industry, consumers are still have to, you know, bring them up to speed and bring bring them on the journey. But I think it is uh, there are lots of tailwinds on on what alts are going to mean in the coming decade. Alternatives as well as private market access is going to mean uh, in the coming decade. So I think uh, that we got right. What we didn't anticipate uh, was the the tremendous uh, restrictions, regulatory constraints bring on the business. So we are a highly regulated business, regulated by the SEC. And so there is just a lot of infrastructure that you have to put in place to ensure that you are doing everything by the books, right? And even the accreditation process, it is, uh, you know, you have to do 100% accreditation. There is no, like, shortcuts there, right? And that adds complexity to your business. And there are lots of archaic rules that we obviously have a dialogue with the regulators and really talk to them about. So there are certain SPVs and you know this, right? You actually know this because you invest in them. So VC, if it's a VC fund, a VC investment, you could have 250 investors. But if it's a real estate SPV, you can only have 100. Like this doesn't make sense. And then there are certain uh, investment vehicles where you could have 2000 investors, okay? Uh, So there are all of these rules that make it, you know, very, very complex. I think you have to get that right. The other thing that we didn't, uh, uh, you know, we kind of knew is going back to the bed that me and Michael had. It takes time to build customer's trust, credibility, right? And to really deliver on that credibility. And we learn about that even today. But in in a business where you're touching people's hard-earned money, that's extremely hard. And for a product that is, you know, a few thousand dollars, you have to take that responsibility very, very well and and uh, and take it extremely obviously seriously because people are not coming and buying t-shirts or some household goods from us uh, they're putting their their life savings and so i think it's very important for us to kind of establish that trust and credibility with the consumer but you know daniel one of the the proudest moments for me is that since inception we have uh, you know returned over 200 million dollars in interest and returned over 1.5 billion dollars in principal and interest back to our investors so Think about what $200 million can do, right? They could probably send 20, 30, 40,000 kids to four-year college, right? That's real impact on, on the lives of our community and our, our user base. So I think we are very proud of that. And we are a platform that has done you know, over 350 investments in this period. So it's an across multiple asset classes, very complex. But I think the, the important factor is we are over 150 investments that are fully matured and paid off. Right. And so I think that aspect uh, is is something that was hard to anticipate by, you know, back in the day, but now we are, we are, we are excited about it, looking
0: back at it. Yeah. I mean, the scale you've reached just that number, you know, those numbers of what, 1.8 billion, 1.5 billion returned and 200 million in interest. That is staggering. I mean, you know, compared to, I'm sure in the initial six months, how you felt like things were going, how maybe how large you thought the business could get. I want to ask one more question, which is, you know, so, so uh, there's a lot of investors that are listening to this interview. There's also a lot of founders, and so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, um, you know, we can talk just about Yield Street, but you clearly have kind of a very broad purview of entrepreneurial experiences that you that you know that you can pull from. So the question I would love to ask is just, what generalizable lessons have you learned as a founder and an entrepreneur um, that you find are really helpful and that you think are worth sharing with others? And is there any of those lessons you can share with the, the founders that are listening to this interview?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So listen, I think uh, generalizable lessons are always um, you have to take the product to the market quickly so that you can actually get real user feedback. And we try to do that even today. A lot of us in the company are super users of the platform, but also outside our network. We cannot take that user feedback You know, absolutely uh, critically. Um, cliched, but very important is ultimately the team right? So who's coming on board? Do we have the right people? What's your true north? And like, can you communicate that vision back to, uh, uh, to the users? I think that's, uh, that is very, very uh, uh, important uh, for, for us to do. Uh, and then the last thing is uh, you also always have to be well-capitalized, right? Because if you are embarking on a journey where you're developing the market, when you want to bring the ecosystem along with you, You need to have the resources to ensure that you can invest in the right areas. So want to make sure that you're well capitalized and and can deliver on that vision. So I think those are two or three anecdotes that are, I think, very important for, for people and founders to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's fascinating when I ask this question to repeat founders, almost all of them talk about the well-capitalized, which makes, makes me think that I think if you're a first time founder, maybe you're not putting enough emphasis (laughs) on just, you know, making sure that you've got enough capital and a lot of capital As I had one founder once say to me, you know, just a really simple reason, which is the vast majority of, uh, you know, venture backed businesses or private businesses go, go bankrupt because they run out of money. So one of your first needs is just to make sure you've always have that covered. I want to just ask now, if you have any closing thoughts, um, We've talked a lot in this episode. It's been a fascinating conversation around public versus private markets, what's happened in public markets over the last 20 years, You know, the growth and an explosion, to be super frank, in private markets, the alts and private markets going mainstream. So we've covered an enormous amount of ground. Are there any closing thoughts or words of wisdom you would leave with people about why private markets are important and uh, why they should be allocating to them?
1: Daniel, all I will say is summarize what we've been speaking about. My belief is that we are entering the golden age of fintech. This coming decade is going to be amazing for fintech, wealth tech, uh, because of the, the the amount of wealth transfer that's going to take place. And so the question for the consumer is, you should not be afraid of it. You should embrace it. I think we talk a lot about spending. We should talk equal amount about earning, right? Like thought your behavior in the last 30 days my beer in the last 30 days, we go to dinner meetings or, or dinners with our friends or family and we say, hey, what's the next hottest restaurant or vacation spot? We should talk about what's the next hottest investment where I, we could make money so we could go to this restaurant. And so that, that whole orientation around education is important. We have to also recognize that alpha in the coming decade will be driven by private markets. And uh, we want to make sure that investors are in the, in the loop with how to take advantage of that. So my uh you know advice always is to get educated on the space not be afraid of it and then you know you have to dip your toe before you can actually swim and so take baby steps to get familiarized with it but i think once you do you kind of lose that fear and then you can like truly embrace what it could do for your portfolio talk to your financial advisor talk to your other people that might be you know giving you advice on on investing and uh and then, uh, you know, I think uh, that's where that's where you'll get diversification on your portfolio and and do right uh, when it comes to comes to your future when it comes to your retirement.
0: Yeah, well, that is the perfect note to end on. Uh, everyone listening, if you aren't familiar with Yield Street, you can learn more at YieldStreet.com. As Melin talked about, they also have a great app. You can go and download that in the App Store uh, and get the Yield Street app today. Thank you so much for coming on, Milan. This has been one of my favorite conversations in a long time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for listening. You can become a member of Yieldstreet today at Yieldstreet.com or by downloading the Yieldstreet app from the App Store. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 112. That's 112. At outlieracademy.com, you can find all of our other founder interviews profiling incredible companies like 8Sleep, Common Stock, Levels, Varta Space Industries, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, and 1-800-GOT-JUNK, among many, many others. In every episode, we deconstruct the ideas, frameworks, and strategies they use to build these incredible companies. You can now also find all of our interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlier On our channel, you'll find all of our full length interviews, as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. So make sure to subscribe. We post new videos and clips every single week. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. Again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Wednesday.